0: this episode is brought to you in part by the table podcast from the hendricks center at dallas theological seminary i'm Darrell bach one of the hosts and i invite you to join us as we discuss issues of god and culture which includes anything and everything listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table
1: without question the pandemic was one of the most difficult seasons the modern church has ever faced even though covid 19 brought an immeasurable amount of pain Grief and anxiety to churches and pastors, there was beauty to be found. In the face of all that the church endured, the theme of beauty from ashes remained constant throughout our interviews with pastors and leaders. It was a tangible reminder that for people of faith, there is always hope, no matter the circumstances. Across focus groups, interviews, community case studies, and survey responses, pastors pointed to a number of unexpected blessings that would not have occurred had they not endured the adversity of the pandemic. In addition to cultivating a new unity in many local congregations, the pandemic also revealed the character of many churches, either highlighting a beauty that is easily taken for granted or providing the refining fire that transformed their congregation into a more Christ-like image. For some, the pandemic pause allowed for breathing room and for the Holy Spirit to take control. Welcome to COVID and the Church. I'm your host, Aaron Hill, editor of Church Salary, a ministry of Christianity Today. Join us as we unpack the results of Church Salary and Arbor Research Group's landmark study on the impact of COVID-19 on the American church. Download your free copy and follow along with our discussion by visiting churchsalary.com slash COVID study. To unpack this theme, I'm joined by two researchers from the Arbor Research Group, Reverend Ebony Davis and Dr. John Swanson.
2: Thanks for having us back. Thank you. Ebony, you
1: wrote the chapter on this theme. That introduction that I just read was written by you. Listeners may find it interesting that this theme was not initially included in our list, but it was your perspective and the stories that you were sharing that convinced us to add this as the final theme Before we get into the meat of the discussion, what inspired you to suggest this as a theme and to want to write the chapter on it in our report?
2: I've gotten to be a part of some really impactful projects with Arbor, but this one just hit me in a different way. I remember the first time that I got to see glimpses of God's redemptive beauty in this project, and it was right when we were doing focus groups with pastors, um, pretty much in the beginning. And we'd be doing these focus groups. Some pastors would cry. Some would finish the focus group and would email me back and say things like, thank you, or I didn't know how much I needed that. Now, we always got some of that with each project, but this was the first project I'd ever been on where every focus group, somebody reached back just to say how much they needed that connection. Some of them even wanted to be connected to the other pastors and the focus groups. Um, I think your listeners may know that in addition to being a researcher, I've been a youth pastor for almost 17 years, and COVID was hard. It was tough on us as a church in a lot of ways. It was tough on me as someone in ministry, and I was living it right along with them. So I could really relate to how this moment to come together and breathe and lament and then celebrate how God had redeemed hard things, just spoke of His grace and beauty if we were willing to open our eyes and see it. And so I think once God began to show me that, I just began to see it everywhere. I began to see His beauty all over this project.
1: Sean, in the chapter, Ebony starts out by discussing beauty in the face of adversity, and she mentions the Great Revealer, which we discussed, I think, in our fourth episode, and how the weight of the pandemic magnified or revealed fractures and cracks. Can you offer us just a few examples of how pastors and churches found beauty in the face of adversity during the pandemic? So this is the tiniest of example. There was
3: a pastor who had COVID twice. And he had parishioners deliver food to his porch both times. And for him, this was this, oh my goodness, this is a congregation that cares about me and sees my need and ministers to me. And for that pastor, it was just such an amazing moment. In the report, we talk about a congregation where a worship leader left and there was concern about Mm -hmm. repercussions from it. And what actually happened is the congregation leaned into each other and leaned toward God, and the worship ended up deepening rather than it being this divisive moment. There was a pastor who was hurt very much by the pandemic, but it helped him understand how deeply he loves communion and the idea Mm -hmm. of helping people to receive communion And so I think that as we think about beauty from ashes, we need to not look for numerically massive data, but to look for Mm. all of these tiny stories of the power of God working in the middle of all of the disruption.
1: Yeah, definitely. I realize that for some churches, some of these overly positive or heartwarming testimonies could actually, they might actually be kind of discouraging or disheartening to hear mainly because your experience may be the exact opposite. You know, Instead of unity or repentance or a light at the end of the tunnel, perhaps you've only experienced disunity and, and lingering bitterness so far. But that's one of the reasons why we tried to balance these experiences in this study to help everyone understand that you're not alone, you're not crazy, and you're not the only one that went through this and had these thoughts and these experiences. But we also wanted to include some hope. Some encouragement. And so some of the stories include hardship and hope, or beauty from ashes, as today's episode is titled. One of those stories that you highlight in the chapter, Ebony, is from a multi-generational, multi-ethnic congregation in the Northeast. Before the pandemic, this congregation was proud of the fact that they were as diverse as the community that surrounded them, 54% African American and 46% white. Ebony, I know that we were not able to interview this pastor specifically because they felt like the wounds that the church had gone through and their own wounds were were a little too raw. But can you share some of their testimony with us and, and a few of the quotes from the chapter?
2: Yeah. So uh, this is definitely one of those stories where the beauty came out of the hardship when this pandemic hit. They just—they chose to follow the government-mandated guidelines and restrictions. They made communication a priority, and they even produced videos to give updates. But despite all these efforts to soften the blow of the restrictions, it was like a bear that was emerging from hibernation. The mm-hmm. pandemic awakened these divisions that had laid dormant beneath the surface of their congregation. And then COVID ends up becoming this political flashpoint. That resulted in a mass exodus, and unfortunately, these fell largely among demographic lines, mostly impacting their white members, many of their white mm-hmm. members left. And so by the time the crisis phase had begun to wind down, the church had lost almost two-thirds of their congregation. Um, mm-hmm. And then there's this pastor who's now forced to reckon with the realization that their common faith wasn't enough to overcome their differences. We touched on some of these, and we talked about pain and loss of presence and political polarization. But some of the worst damage that was inflicted on pastors came from political conflict inside their own church. Mm-hmm. Um, now out of all of this it's really hard to imagine that something good could come out of this and and I can tell you at the time that I interviewed this pastor, he was still blindsided by the turmoil he was still very broken by everything mm-hmm. and he said to me, our heart's desire was just to have grace for where people are at. We spoke that language. we give grace for the space for where people are at our hope Our goal was, let's just love people, even if our view is different. And then we really honored the protocol, and people honored it. And if they weren't comfortable or didn't honor it, they just chose to stay away. And we honored that. We had checkpoints, but we didn't make it awkward or weird or uncomfortable. People that chose to make war of it, they just sort of transitioned out. It was painful. We weren't as connected as we thought we were. We weren't as united When you let racial or political COVID issues divide you and make you take sides, you put pressure on people to take sides. That's not God's kingdom. That's the kingdom of the world. They say they've got your back or we're family, but families divided and split. I just think that's not the order. And so we've seen some of that with relationships that got revealed and how broken of a people we are and how desperately we need healing. You know, as this pastor was talking to me, tears are rolling down his cheeks as he's recounting this hurtful season in his ministry. And then, on top of all of that, it was compounded by grief in his personal life. He had the loss of a loved one who died unexpectedly. He was exhausted from dealing with the ever changing tasks that came with navigating the pandemic. And as we've mentioned previously, his stressors reflected the three most cited concerns pastors had for their well being during the crisis: which are mental and em- emotional exhaustion. Worrying about the congregation and workload, work life balance. Like 15 to 20% of those we surveyed, it crossed the pastor's mind to quit multiple times. So often it's only after we have endured great darkness that we can appreciate the brilliance of light. As the psalmist writes in chapter 30, verse 5, weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. The pastor's turning point toward joy came at the end of May 22. After a sabbatical, that gave him a break to disconnect from the church, to spend some quality time with his family, and lament and process the previous two years with the Lord. After this time, he said, I finally start to feel like I can breathe. There's a remnant here. And if it wasn't for them and the Lord, we wouldn't be here. That just brings tears to my eyes that they trusted God. They believed God. They trusted the leadership of their staff. And I had to trust the Lord in a way that I never had before. I had to learn how to trust the Lord with the sheep I just can't see and touch right now and to realize he is the great shepherd. I'm just the under shepherd and I could just shepherd them with the best that I can with what we have. He'll help the sheep not be scattered. When we asked them to come back and serve whatever we needed, they would come in after hours. They have given their all. How do you thank people like that? We got closer because we've been through something together. So although it came at the expense of a great deal of pain, the beauty that was born out of COVID made this congregation more authentic worshipers. It deepened their commitment to unity and it restored a sense of vision. It has impacted everything about the way they do church, from how they approach children's ministry to their renewed focus on the community outside the walls of their church. For the pastor, the most beautiful part is that there is a new spirit in the church. He said the spirit of the Lord is so different in this place. It's because people want to be here, not because they have to, which makes our gathering time so much more precious, sweet, genuine worship. It's just pure. People's hearts are so authentic and there's no showmanship. Life-changing stories, you know, on a continual basis. Real life change, deep repentance. I believe a real sign of the moving of God is repentance. We're not doing things anymore just to do them, but because they're intentional. They're going to bring healing and hope, or they're going to move us forward. They're not just because we have money. I think God used COVID to refine us and to cut off the excess. The debris is to humble us.
1: John, as we discussed in our episode on political polarization, conflict between the congregation itself and between the leaders made it more likely for the church to suffer a bad outcome. You know, a split, a drop in attendance or giving, the loss of a leader, things like that. So we just discussed a concrete example of this but multicultural churches seem to be on the rise before the pandemic, and a lot of churches in our surveys recently uh, for church salary have indicated that they want to be multicultural or they want to see themselves as multicultural. At the very least, they understand that they should look like the community in which they're located. Given that these multicultural churches were more likely to suffer this kind of conflict, is this a naive goal? Is it realistic or is it aspirational what what steps do we need to take to ensure that these churches don't just split like atoms in an atomic bomb when a crisis hits
3: well i think it's naive yes but that doesn't mean it's inappropriate and it's aspirational because it's something to which we ought to aspire but i think one of the things that is a really important thing is to learn how to talk about hard topics so if we are looking at the outside, in terms of counting how many cultures are part of our congregation, rather than saying, what does it mean to have those cultures come together? What are the underlying values? What are the underlying principles? Are we asking any one of those cultural groups to give up something in order Mm. to be able to fit? And I think that oftentimes Christians have a really hard time talking about hard things. And yet— It's the invitation here that would be helpful. I think a second thing is to make the goal to be a redemptive goal. So, you can have a goal to look like a community, but to look like a community that is being transformed by Christ. So, Mm. not just how do we resemble, but in fact, how do we resemble people in our community who have Christ transforming those lives.
1: Gotcha. And I think
3: that emphasis on transformation becomes a significant thing. And I think also, it is very easy to have loyalty to outside groups. Mm-hmm. So, to watch something and have a connection this way, and to listen to something and have a connection this way, and yet the invitation is to love one another. So, it's the loyalty yeah. internally. And to love Christ together. And I think that the final thing, going back to what Ebony was talking about in this congregation, as this congregation committed to doing stuff, it brought people together. And I think that often we spend so much time looking at each other saying, how can we like each other, rather than Mm. saying, what is it that we are doing? What What are the ways that we are transforming our community? What are the building projects that we've got these people all working together on? In that process of working side by side, it's possible for God to work in us.
1: Ebony, do you have any thoughts on that? I remember that was one of the things that you and Michael brought up in our research discussions was that multicultural churches were particularly impacted by this. I don't have any answers on this, but I was wondering if you had any thoughts on it as well.
2: Yeah, this is definitely an area where I would love to do a little bit more research because this was a place where what was h- hiding under the surface sort of bubbled up to the top. And I think the pastor's statement, we weren't as unified as we thought we were, yeah, was something that was felt in multicultural churches all over. It was something experienced in my own church, um, that we weren't as unified as we thought we were. And so I think to the extent that this brought that up. And and forced us to confront it and come to that realization in a way. I think though it was hard and though it's uh, something I think many of us are still processing and still working through, I think that it ends up being a very helpful thing so that we can come to a more authentic faith, a more authentic following, and figuring out what can we do to make sure our faith is the most important thing that unites us.
1: Ebony, this chapter is full of fascinating and encouraging stories. One of my favorite was this interdenominational consortium. That's what we called it. It's, it sounds like something weird, but an interdenominational consortium of Chinese churches that you guys discovered in California. Walk us through this story. What's What happened here? Tell, tell us about this story. I thought it was very fascinating.
2: Yeah, this, this was actually one of my favorites, too. This pastor was such a joy. Um, This pastor shared that he was part of a network of church leaders reaching across denominational lines to keep the doors open of other Christian churches in their city during the pandemic. And so he was really concerned about this statistic that he had heard about pastors quitting the ministry during COVID. And he mentioned that he was praying for them and he was hoping that they would think about God's calling and return to their ministry. And he said, maybe God tests our faith, and COVID nineteen is a good way to test our faith. And so his church was part of fifteen Chinese churches mm. in their city. And the pastors, going into the pandemic, they had already established a partnership, and they would meet every month to collaborate on outreach. Um, they, Chinatown's nearby, so they would meet every month to support one another for various events and pulpit supply for one another. But during COVID. Some pastors were ready to abandon their large city, and they were thinking perhaps they would be more effective in another district. They had gone into the pandemic already struggling. There's the, the high cost of living, and even things as small as, as the parking situation in mm. their community. And then when you added the challenges of the pandemic on top of that, it just proved to be too much. And so several weary pastors in the group just wanted to leave the ministry entirely. Mm. So when two churches threatened to close, Because they had lost their pastors, members of the consortium stepped in with financial and pastoral resources to fill in the gap until another pastor could be found. Um, I mean, to me, as as he's telling me this story, it, it was almost like superheroes running through my mind, right? One Chinese consortium pastor shared the beauty that emerged from Ashes, saying, We started to pray for his church, then asked if any people can go and help and not let them close. Because of this, God listened to our prayers. This year, they found a new pastor. I didn't want them to close if even one person can come there and listen to the gospel. Mm. In general, our focus group revealed that for Chinese and other majority Asian churches, navigating the pandemic was made somewhat easier by their shared culture and lack of political divisiveness. So for this consortium, it didn't matter to them that the churches they supported were not part of the same denomination. They weren't focused on the challenges in their own congregation that they were unable to help. What mattered to them was working together as the body of Christ to ensure that the gospel would continue to go forth in their community. And so the unity of these pastors and their churches saved two ministries that were on the verge of shutting down. And you just look at that and say, man, how beautiful are the feet, right?
1: Wow. Ebony, another one of the stories that I want to highlight from your chapter is the story of these two pastors that created this amazing connection and ministry during the pandemic. Honestly, it sounds like something out of, like, a Hallmark movie oh, yeah. <laughs> or some sort of like, you know what I mean? It's, it's like, I mean, honestly, somebody needs to make a movie about this. Like if you want to write the script, I'll, I'll, I'll co-write it with you.
2: <laughs> oh man. This story gave me goosebumps meeting with these two pastors together. Absolutely gave me goosebumps.
4: My name is Dan Schmitz, and I am the co director of
0: Hope Avenue. My name is Demetrius Edwards, service pastor of the 23rd Avenue Church of God, co director of Hope Avenue.
1: Thank you guys for joining us today. One of the stories that is highlighted in Ebony's chapter on Beauty from Ashes was the story of you two initially meeting and creating this amazing connection during the pandemic. And there's this beautiful story about foot washing and we wanted to get you guys on the podcast to actually tell us this story. So can you narrate that for us? What happened? How did you guys end up meeting during the pandemic?
4: So Meech and I were part of a pastors group that was run by Ben McBride that was bringing together African-American and Anglo pastors. It was other racial groups as well, but primarily black and white trying to work towards reconciliation and movement building. And so we had done a lot of different experiences together, and we had discovered actually that we were neighbors. Our churches were just a couple blocks apart and started wondering why we shouldn't do more together. And so after George Floyd was murdered, and I think particularly right before the verdict happened, I just felt this strong sense how much grief Meech would be going through at that point. And I felt like the Spirit prompted me to wash his feet, This is a moment that you should actually show solidarity with him. And so I knew that he was going to be recording his church service because his church was virtual. So I grabbed from my home some soap, a little wash basin, and a towel, and the church was locked. So I literally hopped the fence into the church, and one of the assistants heard me hopping the fence and opened the inside door for me so I could get into the church. And when he had finished with the service, I said, Meach, I really feel like God put this on my heart to wash your feet. And I feel like there's so much grief and we're not going to get through this unless Anglo pastors take a much stronger tone of repentance in the way they carry themselves, that they take really to heart the suffering of African-Americans and African-American pastors in the communities they lead. And I'm washing your feet just as an expression of solidarity. And furthermore, because um, we're developing this partnership, I feel like there's a way in which I should be under your leadership. I want to express really clearly that I should be following your leadership. And then washed his feet with his, there was one other member of the church there and his wife was present. And it was just kind of this sacred moment where it was really a spontaneous action. I just felt led to do it. But I think it actually changed a lot of the dynamics of our relationship.
0: Yeah, that day became a game changer for the both of us. And so after Dan washed my feet, I said the only way for me to properly respond would be to model what was in the scripture, that we aren't here simply to be served, but to also serve others. So in like turn, I then took the towel and washed his feet. We just had a meaningful moment. I really felt the Holy Spirit was basically connecting us, not because we're in the same neighborhood. But the Holy Spirit was connecting us, reminding us that we're all a part of this greater beloved community that Christ died for. And in order for people to follow our lead, we have to be the ones leading in service. And not simply leading in service what we do liturgically inside of our buildings and what our Sunday services look like, but being servants to the least of these outside of the four walls, that it can only be done if we're working together.
5: God is a genius storyteller. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform.
0: Because what the pandemic proved, especially from a pastoral perspective, we we would thrive in spaces when we're surrounded by people. But with the grief and the anxiety and the tension in community being at an all-time high and not really seeing people in person— The dynamic of how we carry the pastorate was different. And I felt that God used this moment not only to be an encouragement, but also to be a spark for us to begin to look outside the four walls and see how we can carry a model forward to really model service to neighborhood and community. But doing it together and not doing it as an isolated person, but really living into that whole ethic of we do this as the body of Christ, every essential part being important in the carrying forth of the work of the ministry and the preaching of the gospel.
1: So, Ebony talks about this in the chapter. Can you guys share a little bit about how that actually led or, or played a role in you changing how you do ministry and, and then doing ministry together?
4: Well, I'll go again first, Meech, because I think some of the more significant changes are on my end. So, As Meech and I were in the middle of developing this relationship, I was also part of another group that was challenging me to live more missionally and realized that my work as lead pastor was coming to an end. Part of why I realized it was coming to an end is I started the work moving into a neighborhood, working with refugees without going through seminary, without doing a lot of things, just felt prompted by the Spirit to do that. And so I did a lot of organizing work and other kinds of things directly with the community. And the more I got involved in church, the more I realized the church actually becomes a barrier between me and the outer community that I feel called to serve. And the church appropriately with its internal agendas and spiritual care and all the things I think are truly important didn't allow me the kind of flexibility or freedom to minister outside. And so that's where we started talking about creating a nonprofit because Meach was having similar experiences, but creating a nonprofit doing some programmatic elements with things that we knew how to do in the community. So community gardening was one thing, feeding homeless people was another thing that we were going to do, or addressing food insecurity, and then using those two programs as a means to organize and leverage the community. So they, in a sense, became tools for community outreach. So I stepped out of my pastoral role at New Hope. So I entered the partnership as a senior pastor, and then I became co-pastor in my own church and I stepped out so I was able to elevate the other man and woman who were there into the pastoral role without having to go through a pastoral transition and search. And so right now I am working with youth in the community, developing community gardens, doing broad outreach on a number of different issues with them. And all the youth have barriers to employment, whether that's incarceration or homelessness or mental illness. So I've fully swung into this other world and It's been an amazing picture because actually I feel like I have more opportunities, meaningfully share what the gospel is with the youth I'm working with on a level than I had in the church because the church had heard me and my perspective for 20 years. So there was nothing new I was going to tell them. But for these young adults, it was pretty amazing that this guy who was a pastor suddenly was out there picking up trash on the street and planting flowers and just hanging out with them and being a different kind of person than they expected a pastor to be. So right now I'm doing that actually full time and working alongside Meach. We've taken part of the 23rd Ave uh, parking lot and converted it into a community garden. That's one one of the pieces
0: of what we've done.
2: Can you guys give me the name of your nonprofit and tell us how you came to that name? Because that's a really great story as well.
0: It was interesting because... The way we've imagined this, we never wanted people from our churches thinking that we were intentionally trying to merge our churches. Mm-hmm. We were simply trying to merge purpose together. But not only giving members of our church opportunities to be a part, but even non-believers and members of community who just wanted to see the common good come to life. So it was really simple. Dan, uh, in the congregation he's been with for over 20, was it 25 years? It was the New Hope Covenant Church. Our church at the 23rd Avenue Church of God, and that is kind of easy to think about it as the Hope Avenue Community Collaborative, that we literally are merging this picture, that we're just trying to bring help, hope, and renewal to this community, which is the Lower San Antonio neighborhood, but more specifically, trying to bring new life to 23rd Avenue as a corridor, bringing hope, so Hope Avenue is kind of where we landed.
2: I remember when I was interviewing you all, you talked about standing out and kind of looking over and dreaming about what you're going to do. Dan's already given us some of those, but I would love to hear where you all are with that dream and what you see for the future of Hope Avenue.
0: I think one of the things that me and Dan realized early on is that in order for the neighborhood to change to a picture or a vision, we believe that God wanted to plant in this neighborhood, it was going to take us to work together. And so not only imagining a community garden, not only imagining what would it look like to plant 100 trees in our neighborhood on the street, not only to build food boxes and planter boxes where neighbors could actually plant food, but imagine how the entire neighborhood begins to look and feel Because we've stepped outside of the realm of our regular church activity, which is one of the blessings that COVID gave us. I remember specifically one day we were sitting in the conference room and we talked about how we've made Sunday too important. And we talked about what happens if we put the effort really on Monday through Saturday of being in community, of loving our neighbors, and then creating a space where everyone belongs. Because what the pandemic proved, we had to really rethink what community really is like. And what started as this idea of doing this wonderful thing in the parking lot as an outreach tool, as an organizing tool, it expanded even further. And I think Dan is more well-versed and equipped to talk about what's happening at 2210 23rd Avenue, just a few moments away from our church.
4: So 2210 is actually a vacant lot. Um, It's a lot that's owned by the community land trust. That's an organization in Oakland that was formed at the height of the mortgage crisis. And so it was a way to stabilize homeowners and renters by purchasing land and putting it into a land trust so it stayed affordable. So the city of Oakland recognized that they didn't have enough green space in the city. And so there are certain lots when a home would Burned down, for example, or I don't know what happened to the particular lot where we are. It's been vacant for years. I I never knew what happened to it, but there's no remains of a house there. And the city donated that land to the land trust or gave them a perpetual lease on the land. And it can only be developed as green space. So we contacted the land trust and said, hey, we have this crew of people that we're working with. Can we develop that lot? And so we've gone up there with a bunch of youth who are employed and also a bunch of volunteers. And we're grading the lot, grading, I mean, like we're we're excavating the lot, we're creating terraces on the lot, we're creating places where people can sit, and we're using a permaculture approach that's a restorative practice for the land. So even what we're doing with the land is modeling restoration. And so we have this group of young adults, and it's really interesting because I'll say, here's what I see. The water flows this way. So we're going to do this. And I start talking about all these things. And they're like, what are you talking about? And it's like, no, just keep going. Let's keep going. We're going to grade this section. And so as we get closer, like, oh, I see it. Now I can see what you're talking about. So something like taking a path and defining it by creating stairs and a pathway to walk up the hill. It's like, oh, this is really amazing. Look, we just made this staircase and this pathway. Oh, look, we just made this other section. And so it's really so much fun to just see their eyes light up. When they realize what they've done, and it kind of comes as a whoa, look what we just did. They can't see it almost until they get there. And so that was true with taking the parking lot that was covered with cactus that we all cut down. It was true with putting planter boxes all along East 15. And now the one thing that they see is the neighbors are always talking to us about the great things that they're doing. And that's exactly what I wanted. And that's why I wanted to start with planting flowers because almost everybody loves flowers. And when they when they bloom and they brighten up, everybody thinks that the youth are doing something positive. And so the restorative value of nature then gets attributed to the youth and their action. And so they start seeing themselves as positive change makers in the neighborhood before they've even thought about what that means, right? They just suddenly start seeing neighbors interacting with them differently than they've experienced before. So it moves from suspicion or distrust to like, oh, you're awesome. Thank you so much. And they're taken aback like, whoa, that was cool. They responded to us really well, right? And so to me, it's just a great picture of some of what the church could do if it worked creatively in the community, using things that are already there, using nature, using other kinds of things, and saying like, let's kind of hijack the value of these things for the common good. And let's get some people really acting positively in the neighborhood in a way that changes the social dynamics in the neighborhood. And we see glimmers of how we're doing that.
1: Well, it's exciting to hear what the Lord's doing. Uh, Demetrius, can you tell us the story of this sermon that you preached on Genesis and the flood? The quote that Ebony has in the chapter is about how the shutdown was an opportunity for you to reevaluate what you're doing, and it led you to the conclusion that there's some things that need to drown and die. And I thought that was somehow the most hopeful and the most inspiring interpretation of the flood that I heard in a long time. How did that come about, and how, how did you see that applying in your context?
0: It's directly tied to the conversation that me and Dan had about the busyness of church. And what the pandemic proved to us was the disruption wasn't really all that bad. Now, I want to make sure that I give some context to this. I am not talking about people being infected and affected by COVID. I'm not talking about the grief that we've all had to hold on to to losing loved ones due to COVID. But I was being very specific and responding to that sometimes doing ministry becomes an idol of its own. And what I realized was sometimes the busyness of church was preventing us from ministering to the people who needed the gospel the most. And so all of the programs, all of the special things that we're doing only for a select few was preventing us from really making inroads into communities that need the hope of the gospel. My very first sermon May 18th of 1998 at an 8 a.m. service was entitled, I've Got to Listen to My Father. This is crazy because it was 25 years ago, was out of Genesis, the sixth chapter. And it was more about Noah being receptive to the idea that God was going to lead him in building a structure that he had no expertise in building. He had no point of reference that God was giving Noah an an opportunity to be a trailblazer, to be able to create something that was needed when no one thought it was needed. And the idea of things drowning, it kind of came from this idea that when you read through the narrative of the flood, that there were attempts where Noah tried to come off the ark, but it just wasn't time yet. That it wasn't until the ground completely dried that when he emerged, I think one of the more beautiful stories is when the dove returns and there is this olive sprig or this olive branch, which was a sign that God had the ability to create something without man's input. That if we really wanted to move intentionally during this age of COVID, I believe there are some things that needed to drown, that needed to die, that we needed a season of evaluation and say, is this the best use of church resources and our energy? And what I begin to sense is, when we talked about the busyness of church, is that as pastors, we see a lot of things we would like to do, but because of our current commitments, we don't have time to do the things that we know that God is calling us to because we're so tied down to maybe things that traditionally our church enjoys but doesn't really give us the opportunity to minister to the masses. And so, what I realized is that the shutdown, although it was inconvenient for the church, it was giving us the space, it was helping us to reimagine what could happen if we simply applied the gospel to our everyday lives as God has intended without the interruption of this predisposed schedule of church. Mm. Like, what would it look like now for neighbors who can't come to the building? What if we were able to, through Bible studies, talk about ways that you need to rediscover your spiritual gifts? How is it that you can make food for a neighbor? How is it that you can begin to check in on an elderly person who may be disconnected from kids and grandkids who don't have a geographical connection to that neighborhood anymore? Could we imagine what it would look like if we deputize everyone to just say, you know what, we're going to meet online. We're going to preach this message, and I want everyone who has the capacity or the capability, pick five people. Be a blessing to five people a month, whether it's on one Sunday, whether you do one person a week, but just be intentional about sharing something that God laid on your heart with them, whether it's a message or a meal, whatever you felt led to do, do that since we're not bogged down with the crazy schedule of ministry meetings and being here for 9.30 a.m. for Sunday school and 11 o'clock service and there's no choir rehearsals and there are no usher meetings and there's no pencil sharpening meetings anymore. Let's just use that time (laughs) to live as God intended and follow that model in Acts the second chapter where it talks about how the saints literally from house to house, they shared meals. They had all things in common. And I believe that the the pandemic really, even the playing field, especially for the small church, that we can be a big player in our cities by getting back to those very essential ways of being the church.
1: I like that. It's good stuff. Well, thank you so much for sitting down for the interview. It's been a blessing to hear your story, both through Ebony's writing in chapter nine, but now to actually hear you tell the story in person. So thank you so much. So the other day I was reading about a Christian chaplain who was talking about ministering to people in some of the darkest moments in their lives and how he felt this burden to not validate them, but to just hear and, and accept their stories at the end of their life. It can be hard to see a blessing or a beauty in the midst of tragedy and loss. And honestly, sometimes it it almost feels like we're trying to minimize the suffering, mm. Um I'm going to just open this up to both of you as we wrap up and have this discussion here at the end. How can suffering validate what people endured during the pandemic? And and what is the purpose of looking back and looking for beauty among the ashes?
2: I think because things are hard, it helps us to notice if we're willing to notice. Because the pandemic is hard, where we find unity, we can see it as something beautiful, and we're much less likely to take it for granted. And because it was hard, we had no choice but to trust God in the unexpected or in the ark, as our as our uh, pastor explained. We were reminded that God's plans were greater than ours. And because it was hard, we had to endure the pain of pruning and trust that beauty would emerge from the process. And I think those are all things that we might have missed. Um, if it weren't so hard.
3: So I walked through the pandemic working as a hospital chaplain. So at the time when all of our pastors were talking about not being able to get into the hospital, I was inside the hospital visiting with their parishioners. And I think one of the things that's important in times of loss is to acknowledge the loss, to acknowledge that this is hard, period then we can also begin to say, this is hard, God is alive, and growth comes in time. I have a poster on my wall that says seconds, minutes, hours, days, weeks, months, years. And I think too often we think because something is true, it must be timely. And so we say, oh, because God will bring good out of this in these minutes after your loved one has died, you ought to smile. And the answer is no. But in time, the work of God becomes evident. And so I think that that's the critical both and, that we acknowledge that there was deep loss during this time. And we acknowledge that in time, God works with us across time, God works with us to redeem that suffering, to help us learn about dependence, yeah. to help us see ways that he has worked, and to begin even to rejoice, not because of, but to rejoice in what has come from.
1: Yeah, I I like that idea that beauty from ashes validates suffering, because everybody that's gone through a hard time knows There's nothing like the clarity that comes from realizing, this isn't up to me. Uh, I'm not in charge. I'm not in control. Being reminded, like, we just, we have to wait for the Lord to do things, and everything is ultimately contingent on His outcome, what He wants to accomplish. And so just learning to trust Him in those hard times is, is sometimes the lesson that we need to learn.
3: I think that a related lesson is, it's not always that we have to wait. It's that we can wait. Hmm. I think that the have to creates an obligation. The can creates an opportunity.
1: Definitely. Well, thank you both for joining me to talk about this topic. Honestly, it's been a blessing for me to labor alongside you guys and the whole Arbor team. I feel like the stories that we've heard, I know for me, created a sense of obligation. I just felt this burden that we needed to share them. Somehow, to bear witness to what people went through so that the suffering that people endured might be validated and so that we might be able to learn from the experiences of others and and just be better prepared for whatever is going to be coming around the corner. We don't know what the next year holds. I was looking back at some of the articles on the pandemic and people were talking about it lasting through 2024. And I had this moment where I was grateful that we weren't still in the same place that we were in 2021. There's a sense in which we lose sight of the blessings that have already come. and There's something about looking back and going, hey, we've already come pretty far. God has already done some amazing things, uh, and to be grateful for that. So thank you both for joining me. Thanks, Aaron.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having us.
1: COVID and the Church is a production of Church Salary, a ministry of Christianity Today. Executive producers are Aaron Hill, Terry Linhart, and Matt Stevens. Host, Aaron Hill. COVID and the Church is produced in conjunction with the Arbor Research Group and funded by the Lilly Endowment Incorporated through a grant from the Economic Challenges Facing Pastoral Leaders Initiative. Director for CT Media is Matt Stevens. Tyler Bradford Wright is our audio engineer, editor, and composer. Artwork provided by Ryan Johnson. And our art director is Sarah Gordon.